Thank you very much, Grace. Let us pray. Lord, as we reflect on your word, a passage of scripture that is so familiar to us, help us to hear those words that you would speak to us, to have the understanding that you want us to have. So work in our minds, we pray, through your Holy Spirit, for we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you go to a conference these days, you're more than likely to find that on the programme there will be something marked as the keynote address. It'll probably come at a fairly significant point in the day, probably towards the beginning or at least during the morning session, certainly not at two o'clock in the afternoon, which is very often referred to as the graveyard session of any conference. If you've ever been asked to go to a conference and speak at two o'clock in the afternoon when people are trying to digest their lunch and enjoy 40 winks, you'll know what I mean. The keynote address is placed at a particular time in the day when people are going to be wide awake and receptive. The speaker will be somebody who knows a fair amount about the subject, the topic under discussion, <clears throat> and somebody who also has the ability to inspire people and perhaps make them want to do something in response to what's going on during the day. And when I was asked to give a title to the sermon for this morning, um, it seemed appropriate as, to describe it as two uh, keynote declarations. They're not exactly speeches because the whole passage is quite a short one, but there are two keynote things here, declarations that are made, one by Simon Peter to Jesus, and the other by Jesus in response. Um, and those two keynote declarations take us to the very heart of the Christian gospel, who Jesus was, and secondly, what he came to do. So it seemed appropriate to think about each of those this morning just for a while. Um, so who Jesus was. Um, as we read through some of the earlier chapters of Matthew's gospel, as we have been doing, we find, in fact, that there were quite a lot of people who were asking who this Jesus was. John the Baptist, whose job it was to prepare the way for Jesus coming into the world, uh, began to have doubts about Jesus at one point. When he was in prison, he sent some of his followers to Jesus uh, and they had the question to ask Jesus, are you the one? Are you the one who was, to be, who was to come, the Messiah, or are we still waiting for somebody else? Who are you? King Herod, who was responsible for beheading John the Baptist, was also quite fascinated and in awe of Jesus. And uh, with all the things that he was doing, he began to wonder whether it was John the Baptist raised from the dead. Obviously the sign of a very guilty conscience where John the Baptist was concerned, who is this Jesus? The crowds who listened to Jesus, we're told, were very impressed with his teaching. At the end of that sermon, the passage that we call the Sermon on the Mount, three chapters of Matthew's Gospel, we have the statement that Jesus uh, preached with authority, not unlike the scribes and the Pharisees. Who is this man is the implication. And of course the disciples themselves. You remember the occasion when they were traveling in a boat with Jesus on the Sea of Galilee, a storm uh, blew up and even experienced seamen though they were, they were frightened by the storm, they woke Jesus hoping that he would do something and he calmed the storm, he calmed the boat, he calmed themselves and they said, who is this? Who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? It is an understatement, isn't it, to say that 
the disciples, the first disciples of Jesus, found him a fascinating character. They found him more than fascinating. They'd given up their normal lives, their working lives, in order to follow him because they were so gripped by what he was doing and what he was saying. And obviously, during their time with Jesus, they'd heard other people ask the same question, who is this Jesus? And people speculating about who he was and what he might be. And now Jesus takes this opportunity to actually put them on the spot. And so he says, first of all, who do people say that I am? And they offer a number of answers. And then, of course, he puts them completely on the spot by saying, and who do you say that I am? And that, of course, is the crunch question. And Simon Peter, as so often, was the first to speak. And Simon Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, when Simon Peter said those words, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, I'm sure that he didn't meant all that we pack into that phrase theologically these days when we talk about Jesus being the second person of the Trinity and the Son of the living God. But that phrase, Son of God, that he used was a phrase that was applied often to a king who stood in a special relationship to God. What Peter was in effect saying was, you are the true king, the one whom Israel has been waiting for, God's adopted son, the one that was spoken of by psalmists and prophets. We know that God is fulfilling his promises through you. It was a deeply significant statement. So who is this Jesus um, here in the 21st century? go out into the streets and ask people who Jesus is, you'll um, get a variety of answers. You might uh, bump into a Jehovah's Witness, almost certainly standing on the corner of uh, one of our city streets, um, and they will tell you that Jesus is not God, although they are happy to follow his teachings and his example. You may bump into a Muslim, the Muslim will tell you that uh, Jesus is mentioned a number of times in the Quran, uh, and that he's mentioned with great respect but that he's not divine. He was simply the penultimate prophet of God. You may take in mind somebody who takes the line that the great uh, man, Indian leader, Mahatma Gandhi took uh, when he was asked, what does Jesus mean to you? And Gandhi said, to me, Jesus was one of the best and the greatest living teachers that ever lived. He was a beautiful example of the perfect man. And he came to believe that the spirit of Jesus was the only spirit that could save India from some of its problems. And then, of course, there's the English writer H.G. Wells. Interesting character. He said, I'm a historian. I'm not a believer. But I must confess that that penniless preacher from Galilee is irrevocably at the centre of human history. Jesus Christ was easily the most dominant feature in the history of the world. A remarkable accolade, really, coming from somebody who was not a believer. So through the centuries, Jesus has held a great fascination for all sorts of people. But how deep does this fascination go? I mean, we live in times when it's easy to get fascinated by almost anybody. You pick up the Metro newspaper any morning and you'll find a complete spread in the middle of the page about celebrities. 
You'll be able to find out what Kate Moss wore last night. You'll be able to find out what, uh, who um, Pixie Lot went to the theatre with. You'll probably be able to find out what Justin Bieber ate for breakfast. But how deep does our fascination go? So much of it is just entertainment, it's titillation. Uh, and not, not very deep, although it fills the pages of newspapers. The fascination is sort of skin deep, isn't it? Because ultimately those people don't make a great deal of difference to our lives. But Jesus Christ retains uh, more than a fascination, it's a magnetism, because he goes more than skin deep. He's not here today and gone tomorrow. He's still on the pages of the newspaper 2,000 years after his earthly life. So what is it about Jesus that goes more than skin deep? Well, maybe the place that Jesus chose to have this conversation with his disciples throws a little bit of light onto the subject. It's interesting, just a little phrase right at the beginning of our reading, they went to Caesarea Philippi. Well, Caesarea Philippi was right at the north of the country. You know, you hear a lot about Jerusalem, where Jesus was crucified, of course, down in the south. Uh, in the middle, there's uh, uh, Galilee and the Sea of Galilee, the area where Jesus was brought up and did so much of his ministry, right in the far north where Jesus did not go so often. Jesus took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi to have this conversation, some 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. It stood at the, mount, at the foot of Mount Hermon, which was a very splendid mountain, and also a place that was the location of one of the large, <clears throat> largest springs that fed the River Jordan. Now, when you and I go away, or perhaps we're taken away, or if we're responsible for a team of people, we want to take that team away for a, a day of reflection or team-building exercise, or whatever we may call it, we don't just say, well, let's go down to the pub and have a drink for 20 minutes. We make a proper arrangement, don't we? We, we, we have a day away, we choose our place carefully, a place that's going to be conducive, the right kind of atmosphere where people can be away from things and reflect carefully. And the setting for this declaration was at the foot of Mount Hermon, a spectacular place where it was easy to be aware of the greatness and the grandeur of God. It was also the place, as I say, where one of the largest springs rose to feed the River Jordan in a land that was extremely fertile, one of the most fertile and fruitful places in the whole of the world, a place which was the source of life, therefore. And so when Peter made this declaration about Jesus being the son of the living God, the Messiah, it wasn't just an intellectual statement. Behind this declaration, he was acknowledging that here, Jesus was bringing close to him something of the greatness and the grandeur of God. And also that for him, Jesus was the source, the very spring of what life is all about. That crunch question is still there for you and for me, of course. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus for you? Does Jesus retain that magnetism because he is the one that brings us in touch with the greatness and the grandeur of God. Is he the one who is for us the very source and the spring of what life is all about? So that first keynote declaration. And it was followed by another keynote declaration. It was the one that Jesus made in response 
Jesus was delighted that Simon Peter had made this, uh, uh, this statement, this declaration. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Peter, because this wasn't revealed to you by any other person, but by God himself directly. And he went on to say, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. A keynote declaration as to what he'd come to do, what he was in the process of doing. Because at the heart of the teaching of Jesus, of course, is the teaching about the kingdom of God, the kingdom that can be inclusive of everybody if only they uh, accept him and live in his way and his lordship. A community that we call the church, a community of people who've pledged their allegiance to him. And so this declaration by Jesus uh, about building his church upon a rock is a fundamental one. And yet it's a text that has been dragged this way and that way by scholars and people reading the Bible and interpreting it over the years. Some people have uh, decided uh, that uh, the Jesus was simply referring to Peter. Uh, and yes, it was Jesus that had changed Simon's name to Peter, uh, the rock. And the rock, of course, is something uh, that was a particular, uh, if you're going to build anything, you need something solid to build on, don't you? Uh, and Peter was obviously going to be a solid character upon whom Jesus could build. He was the one who preached the powerful sermon on the day of Pentecost, the day when the Holy Spirit came. Some people regard that as the birthday of the church, when 3,000 people became Christians. Peter was involved along with John with one of the very earliest healing stories, the healing of the lame man by the beautiful gate of the temple. He was one of the first people who stood up and challenged the authorities when they started to question and persecute and try to dampen down the Christian church. He was one of the first apostles to suffer imprisonment. He was a leading character in the, one of the big debates that took place with Paul in the life of the early church. Now, I don't think for one minute that Jesus meant when he said that he was going to build his church upon the rock, that he simply meant Peter. But we do have to recognize and thank God that Peter was such a large and inspiring and creative character in the life of the early church. And then, of course, this same text has been taken. And uh, in Roman Catholic circles, people have come to understand that this verse refers to Peter because he became the first bishop of Rome, followed by many other bishops of Rome up to our present day, whom we call Pope. And there's no doubt at all that some of those bishops of Rome, some of the popes have been very fine characters and great leaders, people on whom Jesus has been able to build his church. In my lifetime, I think of three great popes, Pope John XXIII, who came to the papacy when he was almost 80, and people thought that he was just going to be here for two or three years and wouldn't, would be a caretaker pope, as they put it. Uh, he brought a breath of new life to the Roman Catholic Church, as he called the Second Vatican Council. New relationships began to be opened up with other parts of the Christian Church. Many of the religious orders in the Roman Catholic Church renewed uh, the, their, their origins uh, and found new life. And then there was John, John Paul, the Polish Pope, who came from what we call then behind the Iron Curtain because Europe was divided between the communist countries and the non-communist countries. And Pope John Paul coming from Poland behind the Iron Curtain 
actually played a very significant role, although he wasn't a political person, he played a very significant role in the breaking down of some of those barriers and the process that we then called gladnost. And our present Pope, our Pope Francis, who comes from Argentina, <clears throat> the first Pope from outside Europe for uh, about 1,300 years, and his aversion to pomp and ceremony and his genuine humility uh, have proved quite uncomfortable for some people in the church who like things just as they are. And yet for other people, they've spelt hope. People who've written the church off an, as an institution because they regard it as a, a, a corrupt institution full of power and wealth used in the wrong way. The presence and the behavior of Francis is a sign of hope because they can see the Christian message being lived out with integrity. Now, I don't think for one minute that when Jesus said that he was going to build his church upon uh, Peter the Rock, he meant he was going to build it just on popes, the bishops of Rome. But Jesus has undoubtedly used some of those fine leaders as he has used leaders in other great branches of the Christian church to build his church. But of course, there is another way of understanding this verse, a way that probably most of us understand it, and it is the way in which uh, it seems to tie up and commends the way that Jesus has been able to use his declaration. You understand who I am because the Father has shown you. And Jesus said to Peter, that's how you've come to put your faith in me, and this is the rock on which I will build. The Jewish rabbis often referred to uh, Abraham as the rock, uh, the rock of faith. We had an example of that in our Old Testament reading that Judith read for us this morning uh, when the prophet challenges his people to look to the rock from whom, whom they had been hewn, for whom they'd been cut. Look at to Abraham, your ancestor. And they were invited to look to Abraham because he was a man of faith. He was a man who trusted in God's promises and therefore God could use him and do something with him and make him the father of many nations. And now Jesus is going to use this same method of finding people who had their faith and who would put their trust in God and to whom God would reveal things in order that he would build his church. And that, of course, is where we come in. Because God uses those who have been open to the way in which he's revealed himself in Jesus, those who put their faith in Jesus, God uses them in the building of his church, even as we sit here this morning. And we explored something of that theme in the early part of our service this morning. And a reminder, in fact, that all of us have a part to play in that. When we put our faith in God and the promises he's made, Jesus is able to use us in the building exercise of his church. And in a world where the energies of a lot of people seem to be used in destruction, in literally destroying human life, in making war, in pulling down communities, even damaging people emotionally, individually, and groups of people, where there is so much destruction, how much we need to put our faith in one who is a builder, the ultimate builder, the one who is able to build the kingdom from which nobody need be excluded, 
and in which all can find life. And so what do we make of these two keynote declarations this morning? How do we answer that crunch question that Jesus asked Simon Peter, who do you say that I am? Can we answer, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God? And is Jesus the one who for us speaks to us and brings us in touch with the greatness and the grandeur of God? Is he the one who is the source of our real life? And have we been able to put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ in such a way that we can be part of that building that Jesus wants to do? I pray that we may be. Let's just keep a moment of quiet reflection. And if at the end of our service there are things that you would like people to pray with you about, some personal issue in your life at the moment or way in which you want to deepen your faith or be used in the building of his church, there will be members of our prayer team here at the prompt of the church who will be happy to pray with you. But we bring our service to a close as we sing one of Charles Wesley's great hymns, See How Great a Flame Aspires, Kindle by a spark of grace.